Hello and welcome to Hide the Obsessed. I'm your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today we continue our march through Alexander the Great's life with a focus on Alexander before he came to the throne of Macedon. Last time we talked, been a little bit, but last time we talked about the totality of Alexander the Great's life, with the goal being to provide an overview of, you know, his whole life, obviously, so that as I pop around out of order over the next series of episodes, analyze the different aspects of it. Hopefully, it made some sort of sense and you have a little bit of, you remember hopefully what I talked about way back when. We are going into the new year, 2023, looking good, looking big, and I wanted to give an update here. I fleshed out a schedule for the show, which, you know, in theory I've done before, but now this time determined to stick to it. January and February, I'm doing an episode every other week this is all staged around the idea of getting Alexander the Lover to release on Valentine's Day. Very important to me. So today's the first one. Next one will be the 17th. And that's to give me time to research and hopefully not just procrastinate <laughs> until the next episode in March. Which I should say, I know like all this stuff and I just get so nervous to be accurate. And then when I start doing it, I'm like, oh yeah, I know this. So that's just something I have to work on anyway. In March, I will be releasing an episode every week with the focus on that little quartet of episodes being on the generalship and military abilities of Alexander. So that felt like a nice little, we want to group those together, keep that fresh, do it, bat, 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 bat. After that, the plan is to resume the every other week schedule until we wrap up on May 30th. That may change if I'm able to do it like every week. But for now, the plan is January, February, every other week, March, every week. April, May, every other week, and then we are done. There will be a guest episode as well. So all in all, very excited. I don't want to tease out fully what all the new, all the episodes are going to be because I'm still kind of deciding, and I might decide like, hey, drop this episode, add an episode, we'll see. So keeping things close to the vest there still. Tuesdays, I will be dropping episodes back to the original day. Just works best for me, really. And I promise to do my best to be very consistent from here on out. Now, yet again, I'm recovering from a cold, so I don't think my voice sounds weird. But my breath control is terrible. I've been, like, trying to do this. I have to keep pausing. Keep, keep, ah, have to keep taking deep breaths. Hopefully, I'll cut them all out so you don't hear it, but... <sighs> I'm hurting, I'm hurting. After we get to the 30th, I will be taking sort of a break into the fall. Sort of, because I will also be on... Words and whiskey this whole time, doing the amazing Greenbone Saga by Fonda Lee. So tune into that, read those books, follow us along as we go. In the summer, my new co-host Cassie and I will be starting to record episodes on the next season, which is going to lightly come out in the fall and will focus on women in history. Most, if not all of those episodes will be recorded ahead of time, so... We won't have any of this nonsense like we've been doing the past couple seasons of me not being the most consistent host. But more news to come on that next season. And Cassie will be on at least one episode prior. We'll do like a big introduction thing. And, you know, maybe I'll grill her a little bit. Put her through the paces. Maybe we'll just do something casual. A little movie episode. Time will tell. But for more news on that, stay locked into the Instagram as Hi Tips. But to stay locked into all that good stuff... 
Follow the Instagram at High Tea Obsessed Podcast for updates on that, polls, naming the new episode, naming the new, or naming the new season, logo design, stuff like that. Plus, I think it's a pretty fun place to hang out. Anyway, I'm excited to, at long last, belatedly bring to you Alexander the Prince. As you all hopefully remember, been a long time, my bad. One of the goals for formatting this season thematically rather than chronologically is to not only approach things a little bit differently than other podcasters, other, you know, there's a billion books, billion, you know, there's a billion books, several other podcasts, a couple audio books, great courses, lectures, all that good stuff. So I wanted to be different from them. And I also thought the way I approach history would most effectively be conveyed by doing this format. And because I think understanding that the people in history are people is pretty important. And so I'm not trying to claim we didn't fully understand Alexander or really understand him at all. But by looking at the different aspects of him and his career, I think we can get a more holistic picture and hopefully arrive at a fitting conclusion by the end of this of whether or not he deserves the term great. I also think, and this might just be, you know, my undergrad in psych background coming into play, but I think understanding a person's upbringing, their education, their background, their parents, all important in the march towards understanding who they are, who they become, what they do as an adult. So with the update out of the way, that little introduction out of the way, let's talk about our guy, Alexander the Great. And where to start? Good question. I think we should start with his mother. Olympias of Epirus, a remarkable woman who traced her lineage all the way back to none other than Achilles. Ever heard of him? The famous Greek hero of the Iliad, portrayed by Brad Pitt in Troy. This meant that Alexander could claim heritage from two of the most famous demigods, heroes, and one even a future god in antiquity. These are two of the most revered figures in ancient Greece, Achilles and Heracles. Achilles through his mother and Heracles through his father. Olympias would also be a huge player in the dynastic power struggle following Alexander's death. But we haven't even gotten to his birth yet, so let's not worry too much about that for now. There are some stories that Olympias and Philip fell in love during a religious festival in their younger days. Plutarch reports the story to us. Many historians, they, you know, they dismiss it, they throw dirt on it, uh, call it a romantic adventure, they're not having it. And there are also all sorts of crazy and sexist rumors around Olympias, her relationship with Philip, and her relationship with her son Alexander. She may well have been a follower of Dionysus, and some stories report that she was a very zealous worshipper of a cult of his which involved snakes, and that the particular fondness for them may have found them in her bed, not necessarily doing anything with them that was untoward, but just they were in the bed with her while she was trying to, you know, have sets with Philip or whatever. There are also rumors, pretty nasty ones if you ask me, that she had poisoned Alexander's older brother Aridaeus, leading to a permanent disability of some sort, lightly mental, that paved the way for Alexander to become king. So Aridaeus is Alexander's older half-brother by a different mother, of course, and for whatever reason, he was deemed from an early age not fit to become king, and it could have been a like epilepsy, it could have been that we don't know, but 
Often he is referred to, depending on the time period of the sources, as having some sort of mental deficit. Olympias was known for her passions, as was Philip II, and this would ultimately lead to the couple becoming quite infatuated with one another, at least earlier in the relationship, even if Plutarch's initial story of them falling in love first meeting and then getting married later on, if, even if that's not true, they were said to have a pretty fiery romance at the start. However, it is said that this would pretty quickly blossom into a very fierce hatred for one another. Another story from Plutarch tells us that Olympias had a dream the night before their wedding that a great bolt of lightning struck her loom, causing a fire which traveled all about the land before getting extinguished. This was interpreted as, you know, she would give birth to a great conqueror. Philip II, meanwhile, apparently had a dream that he was putting a seal shaped like a lion on Olympias's womb, which apparently he interpreted, or his seers interpreted, as he him having successfully produced an heir that would be lion-like. Now, before we'd be like, oh, that's crazy, let's hear them out, because Alexander the Great was woken into later, sometimes described as tawny lion-like hair. X Files music, anybody? Now, as we get into any sorts of dreams in the ancient world, any sorts of these portents, and they surround Alexander, believe you me, but these all could have been a fabrication made up years after Alexander's death, and I think we're going to have a whole episode surrounding these portents and stories as we look into the religious aspects of Alexander, because there's, you know, his whole alleged godly parentage, he comes about later in his life, and, you know, was that propaganda? Did he actually believe in his divinity? Who knows? We'll talk about that later. Alexander was probably born around July 20th in 356 BCE, and perhaps the most famous story surrounding his birth is that on this day he was born, the great temple of Artemis in Ephesus in Asia Minor burned. Obviously, because the goddess was away attending to Alexander's birth. Meanwhile, the Persian, ma- the Persian magi were said to have despaired for the one who would bring great calamity to Asia had been born. Another of the stories that comes down to us is one that we've already covered. Philip apparently learned of Alexander's birth after re- receiving the news that his horse had won in the Olympics and that his general, Parmenio, had won a great battle over the Illyrians. It's also said that Philip was most fired up about his horse winning. So, what are you going to do? Alexander born, that brings us to his child. It is said that his brilliance made itself known early and often, and he apparently entertained ambassadors and emissaries from lands such as Persia and Athens, impressing them with his skills at the harp, the quickness of his mind. But again, like much else, have we talked about this episode? It's unclear how much of it is real and how much is invented. Uh, complicating this is like we don't really know a ton of ton about ancient Macedonian court life, so would that have been wholly inappropriate and impossible for a young prince to do? Who can say? Philip was likely largely an absent figure in the young prince's life. You know, he's away campaigning a bunch as we covered in the earlier episodes. Dude was fighting wars constantly, fighting battles constantly. And when he was in town, he was clearly very busy making babies with his wives, entertaining his mistresses, entertaining his male mistresses, which I do not know the term for. He also had a kingdom to run, you know, busy guy, which meant that Olympias and his tutors had a strong hand in Alexander's upbringing. 
He's also said to have had a close bond with his full sister, Cleopatra, and perhaps he was close with his slightly older brother, Aridaeus, as well. I've seen that reported in some cases. Alexander certainly kept Aridaeus alive when he could have killed him once he came to the throne. And, you know, I don't think that's for nothing. I think that I like to think they were friends. But I am pretty favorable of Alexander. I like to think he... Yeah, we'll get into it as we go on. Anyway, as a baby, Alexander was nursed by Lynette, the sister of Clytus the Black, an officer in Philip's army. So, you know, a nobleman, presumably. And as Alexander grew, he was tutored by Leonidas of Epirus, a relative of Olympias. This Leonidas, while not the heroic Spartan you might remember from 300, was apparently a very strict taskmaster, with Alexander remarking later in life that his tutor's idea of a breakfast was a night march, and for supper, a light breakfast. He is also said to have been strict when it came to indulgences like incense, chastising Alexander for being too liberal in his usage of them, which would prompt a famous story that apparently while Alexander was on the Persian campaign, he conquered an area rich in frankincense and myrrh, and he sent them back to his tutor with a letter to not be so stingy with his offerings to the gods. Classic Alexander Byrne. Another teacher of the young Alexander was Lysimachus of Arcarnia, who we know less about, but we do know that he compared himself to Phoenix, the tutor of Achilles, and Alexander, of course, to his famed ancestor. So, bit of a brighter, perhaps? A bit of a flatterer, maybe? Physical fitness, as well as the study of famous texts and Enthedian literature and drama, were surely central features of his education, and it is likely that Alexander lived like any other noble Macedonian youth, being expected to hunt and train in a variety of combat. So, you know, we're talking wrestling, we're talking feats of athletics he's running, um, and of course, as he aged, weapons training as well. There are some, notably our guy, and I use this sarcastically, our guy, Richard A. Gabriel, our pal, who is quite fond of Philip II, very derisive of Alexander, he claims that Alexander's childhood was sheltered and overprotected, that he was a mama's boy, and that he was an outsider in the martial Macedonian. So I did use him for his book on, Al on Philip II, which is pretty good if over laudatory of Philip. I do discredit his theory on Alexander for a few reasons. First, he posits this in a book called The Madness of Alexander the Great and the Myth of Military Genius a book where he very much tries to apply modern psychology and psychotherapy to a figure we have secondary sources on and who lived thousands of years ago. Not ideal. He is also a certified Alexander hater, and it seems to me at least that his opinion on the subject might have bled into his work more than necessary. Which, you know, I am all about banging the drum of Nobody is unbiased. Everyone's biases leak into their writing, even when, and especially when covering historical figures and subjects and all that. However, I would say, even with my leniency on that, he strays too far. Real proof to discredit this theory is that, as we've touched on, the Macedonians were pretty martial, pretty grungy people, if I may be so bold. There's an anecdote that only women who had just given birth were allowed to take a bath, which doesn't make sense to me. I know they did that whole weird oil bath thing instead of water bath thing, but confusing to me to say the least. But sit with me for a moment here. 
Part of this whole restructuring of the Macedonian society and nobility when Philip first came to power, apparently, you know, he's asserting his dominance, things are going to be different here now. A nobleman was bathing and Philip had him whipped. So, you know, weird story. Not sure where I come in on it. Not wanting to give, you know, too, too much credence to it here. But I guess my point is, these people apparently weren't allowed to bathe. Noblemen were not allowed to recline at dinner until they had killed a boar by themselves, which is a pretty difficult task, right? And the Ardiad kings weren't necessarily like, they were first among equals. And that's why we see Philip always leading from the front. That's why we see Alexander later doing the same. They don't necessarily have the strictest, they don't necessarily have the strongest position in the world when it comes to kingship. Plus, any Ardiad male has a claim on the throne. And there were several left alive at this time, including Philip's nephew, Perdiccas, who could claim the throne if Philip were to die and Alexander seen unworthy. And Philip only has two sons alive at the time of his death, that we know of at least. And for most of Alexander's life, he was the only one seen as a legitimate, legitimate heir to the throne. So why would... Philip allow his son to be raised in a way that to call into question his line. It doesn't really make sense. I also find it hard to believe that if Alexander was raised outside of this martial culture and was a pampered, spoiled brat his whole life, which he might have been a spoiled brat, but like, if he wasn't forced and tasked with the same strictures of the other Macedonian nobles, how would he have been raised into his position as changed so quickly? He was also regent and led wanes of major battles at 16 and 18, so all in all, I just find this whole Alexander not having a normal childhood relatively, I find it lacking, basically, and I probably spent too much time breaking it down. There's also the most famous story of Alexander's childhood to consider, which is the taming of perhaps his best friend, Bucephalus. We don't know the exact timeline on this, of course but most historians place this sometime around the age of 12 or 13, probably closer to 12. And this is one of the rare recorded incidents of young Alexander and his father hanging out together. If the salient horse trader came to the court with a magnificent young stallion to sell to the king of Macedon, it was notably large and powerful, and he was named Bucephalus, either after a mark on its coat that looked like an ox head, or due to a brand from the breeder that looked the same. Bucephalus, while magnificent, was proving himself unrideable. Several of Philip's young grooms had been thrown off when trying to put the horse through its paces. You know, they tried to get mounted, ride it, have it trot down a little bit, all bucked, all thrown off. Throwing the fact that this trader was asking for the ungodly sum of 13 talents, Philip was ready to just send them away, you know. He's like, no matter how beautiful this horse is, and it was, you know, beautiful horse by all accounts, Philip wasn't having it. He wasn't worth anything, let alone 13 talents, if he couldn't be ridden. Now, a note on what talents are. Talent was 6,000 drachma, and a drachma was basically a day's wage for a skilled worker or a soldier, which I think a good wage for a soldier is how most modern sources phrase it. So that's one drachma per day. 6,000 drachma would be 16.4 years of pay for a soldier or a skilled worker. And this guy wanted 78,000 
for one horse. Now, Frank L. Hoyle Frank L. Holt in The Treasures of Alexander the Great notes that this ast was 65 times more than any other recorded price for a mount purchased in antiquity. Which isn't to say that it was the only one that went for such a high price. However, our other sources, like, it's basically unheard of is what we're getting at here. It's a huge ast. Anyway, Philip turns the trader away, lamenting the uselessness of the horse. It is said that Alexander jumps up and loudly says that they would be losing a great horse due to the inability of the grooms. And he wanted to shut up about it. He kept John and everyone letting them know that they were making a huge mistake here, letting this horse leave. Now, Philip got a little annoyed by this. He's like, hey, man, we know a little something about riding horses. You know, we're not the Athenians. We're not those Greeks. We know about riding horses. And while the Macedonians weren't on the same level as the Thessalians, they were expert horsemen and no strangers to fine mounts. Like, basically, everyone knew what they were doing. They knew this was a good horse, but it couldn't be ridden. Alexander proclaims that he could manage the horse better than anyone. And Philip's like, all right, bet, prove it, kid. What are you going to do? Alex says, if I can't ride this horse, I will pay the full purchase price myself. Now, I don't think our guy had 13 talents. However, Philip was apparently amused by this, or at least his gumption, and agreed to the bet. However, those around him, I guess, burst into laughter that, you know, they thought this was hilarious. Now, Plutarch tells us, Alexander ran to the horse, took hold of his bridle rein, and turned him toward the sun. For he had noticed that the horse was greatly disturbed by the sight of his own shadow falling in front of him and dancing about. Once he reached the horse, Alexander spoke to him, stroking his head, throwing down his cloak, and leaping onto Bucephalus's back. Gently, making sure he did not put enough pressure on the reins to make the bit date into the animal's mouth, he rode gently. But when he saw that the horse was rid of the fear and was impatient, he gave him his head and at last urged him on with a sterner tone and thrust of foot. Philip is said to have been pretty fearful at first for his son's safety, you know, as we are getting at. This is his only real heir, he's only 12, and given that we know that he grew up to be a small adult, lightly small for his age as well. He'd also seen this horse throw more experienced riders, you know, like horse professionals, basically. And as it raced further and further away, if it were to throw the air and then stomp him, there'd be nothing anyone to do. Alexander galloped away, racing faster and faster before turning and coming back to the assembled party. The king kissed his son and then apparently said, My boy, Macedonia is too small a kingdom for you. You need to find a greater realm. Now, that last bit, and indeed much of the story really, is lightly embellished, if not entirely made up. But Bucephalus is certainly real, and his bond with Alexander was to become famous. Bucephalus was Alexander's favorite horse, which is something of an understatement because in later days, Alexander would wage a war on behalf of this horse and name a city after him. The pair would face endless marches, cross over mountains, rivers, and valleys, charge over and over into battle from Greece and Macedon all the way to India by the time the stallion died and had a city named after him. So, it could be a case of Bucephalus and Alexander's bond being so strong that our ancient sources had to invent a fitting story for their first meeting. But I like the story, and though it may be naive of me, 
I'm inclined to believe that some version of it is true. The incident is telling of another of the young Alexander's traits, his stubbornness, and it is said that Philip considered it best to persuade Alexander rather than to command him. Noting his stubbornness, precociousness, and ability, he determined it was time to find a new, more suitable tutor tutor for his heir. Philip considered all manner of great thinkers and philosophers from across the Greek world before arriving on Aristotle. At this time, Aristotle was about 40, and he didn't enjoy nearly the reputation he does today. He was far from the most famous, for the time, applicant to the posting as well. But to us moderns, I think this definitely adds to the allure of Alexander and how cool he is. I'm not a philosophy guy by any stretch of the imagination. My hot take, all philosophy is bullshit. Don't at me, I don't care. But I think Aristotle is like a top three ancient philosopher up there with Plato and Socrates for being recognizable, at least, to the general public and to people who look at history at all. And so it's like, here's a guy, one of our great thinkers, one of our great scientists, philosophers, knowledge guys, casually tutored one of our best conquerors, maybe our best conqueror. That's, that's sick. That's cool. In return for his tutoring, Aristotle likely received a fair bit of financial compensation, and he also managed to get Philip to agree to rebuild his hometown of Stagoria, which Philip had raised, and Philip agreed to repopulate it by buying and freeing any ex-citizens who were held in slavery, and by pardoning any who were in exile. Aristotle tutored Alexander at Maiza and perhaps other children of leading Macedonia houses were tutored there as well, perhaps by Aristotle. Historians are pretty divided on this, and whether this is where many of Alexander's later very famous friendships come into play. Some say that his friends like Ptolemy, the future king of Egypt, no big deal, Hephaestion, Alexander's best friend, self-described alter ego, possibly lover, Harpalus, later become Alexander's treasurer, and Nearchus, Greek and leader admiral, of Alexander's fleet were tutored alongside Alexander here. Whether this is true, whether they met in Pella and studied together at an earlier age, whether, you know, it doesn't matter. Wherever, whenever these boys attained Alexander's favor, whenever they became best friends, boys, their bond would remain strong with their future chain for life. And it would lead to them attaining high places in the future. In terms of actual schooling, Alexander is said to have studied Homer, politics, ethics, and philosophy under Aristotle, as well as, you know, natural sciences, medicine, which he was apparently quite keen on both of those. Alexander would, throughout his campaign, send new animals or plants that the Macedonians discovered back to his old tutor, Aristotle. He's also said to have gone through after battles and, like, personally diagnosed his ailing troops, stuff like that. We don't really know how good of a student Alexander was, but I think because of, you know, those two anecdotes I just dropped, as well as Alexander's love of, like, the Iliad, his love of religion, respect for religion and philosophy throughout his reign and that we see demonstrated during his days as a conqueror, and the fact that Aristotle prepared an annotated version of the Iliad that he gifted Alexander, and which Alexander kept under his pillow at night, along with a dagger, I think it speaks to a good relationship to the two at the very least, even if Alexander wasn't the most skilled student. And there's nothing really to say that he wasn't a good student, but, you know, something to think about. 
It is also likely that Alexander's physical training continued during this period, I would say exceedingly likely. Alexander studied under Aristotle from the ages of 13 to 16, when he was appointed as regent for a period in 340 BCE, while his father was away campaigning in Thrace. While serving as regent, trouble emerged from the Medi on the borders of Paeonia and Thrace. Alexander met this threat, how else, but by gathering a force of the remaining troops left in Macedonia and marching to give battle to the Medi. After settling the matter by defeating them in battle, he dispersed the population and founded a new city he called Alexandropolis with a new population to resettle the region. From there, we have to jump two years to the Battle of Chironia, which we've covered a little bit in the Philip episodes. Chironia was, of course, the battle that, for all intents and purposes, brings to an end the sovereignty of mainland Greek Poli. And, you know, Athens, Thebes, several other allied cities, they've united. They're like, we're going to put an end to this Philip threat. It's time to face him in a real battle. And now I, the details are scarce for this battle, of course, because everything before we get to Alexander becoming king is pretty scarce. But I do want to try to use this to the best ability we can as a test for describing battles so that I can, you know, if you guys are willing, give me some feedback into if this makes any sense at all to you, because I would like that, you know, I just want practice doing this before we get to the serious battles. Anyway, so we're in early 338 BCE. Alexander is now 18 years old, and he is placed in command of the companion cavalry for what proved to be the largest and perhaps most important battle of Philip's career. Basing this on a few different modern sources estimates here, the allied forces of primarily Thebes and Athens numbered probably somewhere around 30 to 35,000 troops and around 3,000 or slightly more cavalry. While the Macedonians likely were outnumbered in this battle, but not by a crazy margin, and some have them as about the same figures. So we're looking at perhaps 30,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry for the Macedonians. Again, details are scarce. Some is conjecture, so just a heads up. The Allied Greeks likely chose terrain on the western side of the plain of Chironia that would protect one flank with the stream and the other with broken terrain from the valley, so it's a, it's a little rocky. This would make it difficult for Philip and the Macedonians to get around them and surround them, outflank them, all that good stuff. The Thebans were at one flank, likely the right as they commanded the army, and this was a place of honor. And the Athenians commanded the other flank to the left. Once the forces got lined up with the Thebans bringing their sacred band, a reported group of 150 pairs of, lover, of lovers, thought to be an elite force that would never break due to their devotion to one another. That was a lot of Ds. That was tricky for me. Unclear if the sacred band was real, if their love was real, but lots of modern historians bring it up, so I wanted to as well. Just do my due diligence there. Our ancient sources apparently don't say where the cavalry were stationed for either force, of course, but Alexander is often listed as positioned on the left, opposite the Thebans and the sacred band, while Philip was on the right facing off against the Athenians, the weaker of the allied Greek forces, the less experienced and battle-tested. It is said that this was probably a long and slaughtering battle, hard, hard fought. Philip 
And the foot companions, or hypacipists, were on the right, facing the Athenians, like I said. And Alexander is lightly supported by Permineo and Antipater, with the companion cavalry. This might be too repetitive, I just want to make sure this is as clear as possible. The phalanx were holding the middle, and again, armed with their sarissa, which were nearly, if not totally, double the length of the allied spears, making it unclear whether the Greeks would be able to even reach and inflict damage on the Macedonians in large numbers. One pretty smart thing the Greeks did here was to deliberately spread their line to cover the entire two-mile stretch of the plain, which forces Philip to do the same and weakens the punishing power of the phalanx. Big part of the phalanx at this stage is how strong it was, how heavy it was, and so, you know, pretty good job by the Greeks to naturally diminish that a little bit. Having drawn up, it is likely that the two forces waited a while, looking and perhaps giving great cries designed to unnerve the others before eventually attacking. Philip is said to have ordered his men to approach the Greek line at an angle, the Athenians marching to meet him, drawing themselves away from their allies and causing a gap in the center to open up, which is said to have been attempted to be closed by those on the right in the center, drawing the line somewhat into disarray, especially because the sacred band apparently stayed where they were ordered to and did not move to plug any gaps. This opening was caused not only by Philip's tactics, but by the coordination of his army after years of hard drill and hard-fought experience, as well as the inexperience and particularly the inexperience fighting together of the Greek side. Now, after engaging the Athenians, Philip feigns retreat. You know, he pretends to retreat. His army is very well disciplined and trained. They're going to keep tight formations as they do this. The Athenians, overeager, to prove their skill over eager to force their great enemy out of here. They give chase. Their line starts staggering, falling into disarray. Philip abruptly turns, marches to face them, and begins to... Some sources describe it as a rout. This really isn't considering the number of forces involved. But eventually, substantial numbers of the Allied forces fall in battle. It is likely the Athenians numbered around 1,000 dead and a further 2,000 captured, with the other allied contingents suffering similar numbers of killed and captured. Alexander, for his part, was said to be the first to breach the line, but again, this was likely invented after the fact and can't necessarily be relied on as the truth. Allegedly, Alexander and his forces destroyed the entirety of the sacred band and performed well in the battle, and of course, if this was true, Philip was very pleased. As usual, so in the immediate aftermath, there's a bunch of this st- disputed details about how Philip conducted himself, how he treated the prisoners, how he treated the dead. He cremated his own dead, believe buried the other allied dead, cremated the Athenian ashes, and was, and was pretty respectful in his dealings with Athens following the battle. He cremated their, falling, their fallen and gathered the ashes and sent Alexander, Antipater, and another unnamed nobleman to Athens as envoys, letting them know the Athenians captured during the battle would be returned without ransom. And again, this was pretty par for the course for Philip. He was usually pretty lenient in his dealings with Athens, mostly because he wanted them as an ally to keep their fleet. This was to be young Alexander's only trip to Athens, though he and Philip were both made citizens during this trip. 
From here, we're going to skip again another time jump, this time to Philip's marriage to Cleopatra Eurydice, niece and basically adopted daughter of his general Attalus, who we don't know a ton about, but he was married to a relative, a female relative of Parmenio, which basically he's got a lot of juice is what we're getting at. And it's unclear whether he always had a lot of juice, whether Philip's alleged infatuation with his niece and ward garnered him this, but at least Alexander's eye, Adelis began to curry a gross amount of favor from Philip. Cleopatra Eurydice is supposed to have been crazy beautiful, and the remainder of Philip's wives were getting to a point where future children were, and he only had one suitable mare heir at this point, so, you know, Alexander's going to serve as regent, making his position dangerous. And if anything were to happen to him or Philip while Philip is away campaigning in Asia, the Ardead line would fall into question. Basically what I'm getting at here, there were legitimate political reasons for this marriage. However, however, it seems that from the jump, Alexander was feeling insecure about it. Potentially he was egged on by his mother, though that may have been ancient source, you know, being biased against her, they did not like her. Possibly he was just sour about being chosen to remain as regent while the Persian campaign was waged and promised his father more glory. Nevertheless, Alexander attends this great feast celebrating the marriage and is said to have been reclining on a couch. Reclining, interesting. Richard, because that, I seem to remember, only noblemen who had killed a boar could recline. Anyway, dude's just, you know, he's chilling hard at his dad's wedding. He's drinking a little bit. Everyone's having a great time. They're feasting. They're drinking. Adelis rises to give a toast. And that made sense. You know, his adopted daughter's getting married. He praises the newlyweds. Nothing untoward there. That's pretty cool. He then loudly prays for a legitimate, true, full-blood Macedonian heir. Clearly a barb at Alexander, who was in the room. Insane stuff from our guy Adelis, even if he was drunk. You can't be insulting a prince right like that. You can't be insulting a prince like that while he's in the room. Too, like, that's crazy in front of a ton of people. Alexander was, of course, insulted, flung his own cup at Attalus, and demanded an apology. And he also wants to know, hey, like, what are you saying, old boy? Are you trying to say I'm a bastard? What's up? Attalus pointedly refused. At this point, Philip notices, hey, some commotion going on. I'm the host. I gotta stop this. He rises, apparently angry at Alexander, and draws his sword. But fortunately for me as a fan of Alexander, and a dude who hosts a podcast focused on Alexander currently, he stumbles, he falls, he's unable to, I guess, stab his son. Alexander then roasts his father, saying, Look everyone, here is the man who would cross from Europe to Asia, but is upset in crossing from couch to couch. Great burn, Sit rose from our guy. This led to the short so-called exile with Olympias returning to Epirus and apparently imploring her brother Alexander to rise against her husband while her son Alexander was visiting the court of the Illyrians. There's also the debacle with Philip attempting to arrange a marriage for Aridaeus once Alexander and Philip reconcile and come back and Alexander sending an actor to negotiate a marriage for himself instead of Aridaeus. We've covered all this, so I'm skimming over it. Philip was incensed when he found out, explained his motives to Alexander, and exiled his friends, Nearchus, Ptolemy, and Harpalus, 
because they were being bad friends. They were giving him bad advice, leading Alexander astray. There aren't a ton more details in these two incidents other than what I've already covered, so that's why I'm just keeping it moving. And that, of course, brings us to the murder of Philip at the hands of his bodyguard and the ascension of Alexander to the throne. We've already covered the murder and the motives behind it. I've already said that I don't think Alexander did it. We've already covered a little bit about who I did think did it. If anyone besides the actual murderer was behind it, I would say it was probably the King of Persia, but we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more in next episode. Because next episode, we're going to be talking about Alexander's ascension to the throne, how he goes about securing his new seat, all of that good stuff. But before we get out of here, you may notice, I haven't described Alexander's looks yet. I've said he's short, that's it. And that is because, other than the fact that he was short, even for the time, we don't really know what he looked like. Some sources say he smelled great, some say he smelled sweet, some say he had an odd scent about him. Some say he was handsome. Some give him an odd tilt to his head. Some of what are often attributed to his be his looks are from the so-called Alexander romances, fictions that followed his death. He probably didn't look like an Irishman with his hair dyed peroxide blonde, but who am I to say? Adrian Doldsworthy and Philip and Alexander, kings and conquerors, gives the following description. As a man, Alexander was much shorter than the average for Greeks and Macedonians in the 4th century BCE. Although small in stature, Alexander was well-proportioned, strong, and a good sprinter, all of which reinforces the sense of constant physical training. His complexion was fair, skin sometimes ruddy, and his hair described as tawny like a lion's. His eyes were odd-colored, one blue-gray and the other brown, which may have contributed to his unusual and sometimes off-putting gaze. At some stage, he developed the habit of leaning his head a little to the left and staring upward presumably higher than the taller men often standing around him. Ian Worthington, in By the Spear, writes, Alexander was a short man. After the Battle of Issus in 331 BCE, one of the captured Persian noble women mistook the taller Hephaestion for Alexander. When he sat on the royal throne in the palace of Susa, his feet did not reach the ground. His actual appearance is controversial. Depending on which ancient account is read, he was said to have a lopsided face because his neck inclined to the left, a round chin, a long, thin nose, a bulging forehead above watery eyes, one of which was apparently light blue and the other brown, very sharp, pointed teeth, a high-pitched voice, and a thick, tousled mane of blonde hair. If he really did look like this, then his later portraits were deliberately softened to make him more handsome. These busts also depict Alexander with his blonde hair and ringlets with a central parting, and against the tradition of the time, beardless. Roman images of him, like the one with the Alexander mosaic, were likewise idealized, as they featured Alexander with dark, curly hair and sideburns. Now, this is me, in my head, and I don't know if this is helpful, certainly not accurate, but I picture Zach Efron as Alexander the Great, and I picture Philip II as Bradley Cooper. Now, again, is it accurate? No. But it is fun, and... I like to envision things sort of cinematically, so it helps me. And it helps you sick. But that is all we have time for this week. But be sure to tune in next time in two weeks when we discuss Alexander the King, his rise to the throne, and his securing of the new seat. But first, be sure to give the podcast a follow on Instagram at High Tea Obsessed Podcast for memes, updates, reviews, all that good stuff. 
and be sure to drop five-star rating, five-star reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. And even if it isn't what you use, it isn't your go-to. Please drop a review and rating on Apple Podcasts as well. I would super appreciate it. It'd be super cool. So until next time, remember, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Peace.